everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page, where you do get early access and exclusive content. Link will be down in the show notes. So today I'm talking to Alex Narasta. He is the Director of Immigration Studies for the Cato Institute Center of Global Liberty and Prosperity. And as such, he spends his days thinking about and writing about immigration and so I wanted to talk to him a little bit about that. And what I wanted to start with is your pinned tweet, which for those of you who don't know, go on Twitter, go on Alex's Twitter account, go look at his pinned tweet, because that is a chart of what it would look like specifically for a dreamer to try to get legal here in the United States, which if you want to go look at this chart, I suggest finding at least a 60-inch screen and know that you're still going to have to pinch and scroll to be able to look at this whole chart because it is not an easy thing to do. So let's kind of start there with kind of discussing the idea that there are a lot of people who say things, especially in relationship to dreamers or to any kind of immigrant in general, that they should just do it legally or you get legal or you get in line and it's not that simple and it's not like just going to the DMV and giving them some paperwork and then you smile and then whoosh you have legal permanent resident status yeah that's right i think it's part of the mythology of the united states right we all learn and talk about how our ancestors came here through ellis island or castle island before then or even some earlier means and we say well you know you just you know, they showed up and they went through and it was super easy. They made us maybe stay in line for a day or two and some of them went into quarantine and all this stuff. But basically anybody could become an American. And, you know, that would be basically true through like the 18, you know, through the early 1880s. But after that, it started to get more and more restrictive. So it hasn't been true, I mean, in any meaningful sense for people from Europe since uh, 1921. Um, like the saddest part, I think, of my job is having to tell people that Ellis Island is actually closed and that the way that their ancestors came here doesn't exist anymore. And it's been replaced by this um, monstrosity, this bureaucratic monstrosity, which some judges and law professors have referred to as um, second in complexity only to the income tax. And if you take a look at these charts or try to understand basics of immigration law, um, it's virtually impossible for most people who want to come to this country legally to do so. Um, and there's really like two big areas in immigration law. There's sort of the, the path to a green card, which is lawful permanent residency that allows you to eventually naturalize and become a citizen. And then there are these 40 or so non-immigrant visas, which allow you to come here temporarily for another purpose, but you can't stay permanently on them. So like focusing on the green card portion of it, which is what we think of when we think of immigration actually coming here permanently to live, it's only four ways to get in. The first is to be closely related to an American. Um, that accounts for about 70% or so of the million or so green cards handed out a year. The second route is to the employment-based green card category. Um, this is for 140,000 people. Uh, you have to be sponsored by an American firm, be very highly skilled. Only 7% of you can come from one country. It costs thousands of dollars in government legal fees. And then the third route is through the humanitarian system. This is asylum uh, and refugee systems. 
Uh, they account for a small number, especially now in the Trump administration, a very small number of people being allowed in annually. And then the last one is the diversity visa, which is just for people from countries who have sent fewer than 50,000 people in the last five years and who have a high school degree and who pass all the safety requirements. You enter a lottery for 50,000 slots. Uh, last couple, a couple years ago, when I last checked the figure, is somewhere around 23 million people entered the lottery for 50,000 slots. So if you notice, there really is no way for a low-skilled worker to come to this country legally, um, which means if you apply this backwards in time, you know, virtually none of our ancestors would be here today. Exactly. And, and it kind of irks me when people say, well, my family did it legally. It's like, first of all, did they really? Are you <laughs> sure? You might want to go back and double check that. But doing it legally, even up to I think it was 1921, was it when they started implementing the quotas? Yeah, it was 1921 for the Europeans um, is when they started to put those quotas in place. Uh, but if you were Chinese, you know, you couldn't come after uh, 18, between 1882 and 1943. Um, they were all barred. So, uh, and Japanese from 1907 onward, um, you know, Africans and Asians, the rest of them were barred in 1917. Um, and then they finally sort of put this very strict quota on Europeans in 1921. So, um, you know, there was illegal immigration before then, just not that much. But I think you're right. Like, it's like, well, big, you know, good job. Your family came here when we had open borders. Like, you know, good on them for making that trip. That was dangerous, you know, investment in their future. Like, congratulations. But that's no legal hurdle to be proud of. Yeah, because there wasn't one. And it's it's the whole idea, well, my family came here and they worked hard and they made it. It's like, yes, your family came here and worked hard and they made it. Just like everybody else's family wants to do. But going back to the quota thing, because I don't think people realize kind of how far back this issue with immigration goes. I think we tend to look at it as a very now issue because of the Trump administration and a lot of the horrible things that they've done. But especially with the quotas, I don't think people realize until like really the mid 60s, which this also encompasses um, a couple of world wars, that we had a, we had a quota system and that it was applied in ways that was not very kind to certain people trying to escape those wars, shall we say? Yeah, um, that's like really a nice way to put it, actually. Um, <laughs> quite, quite a lot of euphemism there. Um, I mean, the, the the quota system was put in place in 1921, like right after World War One, and it was intentionally designed to limit Southern and Eastern Europeans, especially Jews and Catholics, from coming to the United States. And you know, you hear all the arguments today that were used, right? They're all welfare cheats. They'll never assimilate. Um, they lower wages. They're a national security threat because of communism, like communist revolutions going on um, in, in, in Europe and in uh, the Soviet, uh, what would become the Soviet Union. Um, there were lots of terrorist attacks. You hear about the crime complaint. But on top of that, you also have this, like, um, eugenicist complaint, this stuff that was like very popular at the time, this sort of pseudoscience uh, was used to lock these people out of um, the country. And those laws persisted um, more or less intact until 1952. And then in 52, the most like explicitly racist parts were kind of uh, the wording was changed 
to make it seem less racist on its surface. And then they were finally gotten rid of uh, in 1965. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize up until World War II and really until the rise of Hitler, just how anti-Semitic our immigration policy in this country was. And then it was like the rise of Hitler, obviously. And everyone was like, ooh, no, um, I think I, I don't think we can discriminate against the Jews like that anymore. Yeah, that was... Like, um, ooh, this is a bad look. Yeah, that was a bad look. Um, there's So that's, that's an interpretation that I think is um, most forgiving of the American median voter and politician. Um, I, I, that's the one I would prefer to be true. But there is some interesting evidence by these guys, Fitzgerald and Cook Martin. They wrote this book called Culling the Masses. And their theory is that immigration was liberalized after the war as part of the Cold War, as part of sort of um, anti-Soviet uh, political actions and propaganda, because the Soviets are like trying to get the third world that was becoming independent to be on their side. Um, the U.S. was trying to get them to be on their on you know the U.S. side, and the Soviets are like, listen, we actually respect you. We'd let you immigrate to the Soviet Union, but these Americans who have all these racist eugenicist laws, not even allowed to go there, you know, Africans and Asians and most Europeans. So, you know, you can listen to what they tell you, but uh, when push comes to shove, they don't like you that much. So uh, we really do like you. And they argue in this book that that was the major reason, not like any kind of post-war guilt, although, you know, I think guilt plays more of a role than they probably think. Uh, I think there's a lot to their thesis. <laughs> I think there might be something to that, too, because the Soviet Union also did the same thing with women as, as contrasting their treatment of women to the U.S. by saying, like, oh, look, we send women to space. They won't even let women go to work. See how much better we are than they are? Yeah, yeah. In the, the context of the, of the Cold War, you know, a lot more of these um, actions make sense, I think, and can be explained by this. Yeah, but I want to I kind of pivot from that because I think this is a pretty good pivot point to kind of the the attitudes in this country against immigration and how a lot of them and I really I try my best to engage this in good faith because I don't like to make assumptions about everybody who is anti-immigration or who has kind of more restrictionist viewpoints but I do think there is kind of this very emotional slash anti-intellectual reaction to immigration that, again, when you if when you're somebody who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about these sorts of things, it just kind of sounds good in your head and it sounds kind of like logical and common sense, but it's really kind of not when you start to drill down on it. So I, I'm trying to figure out ways to kind of get around that to try to talk about immigration with people who have more of a restrictionist viewpoint. This is something that I've been struggling with forever, um, and, and we have a couple problems, right? One, one is the law is really complicated, and two, nobody understands it. And I guess the third problem is everybody has a sense of American history in immigration, which is largely true, but not true anymore. So like these three things, I think, combined make it very difficult to convey to people just how messed up the current system is because like I give these talks all the time in Arizona where I talk to like Republican audiences and um, one time years ago 
I gave this talk about illegal immigration and economics, and this nice old lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, listen, I understand what you mean about immigration and how it affects the economy, and it's good, but why don't the illegal immigrants just go to the post office and register and become legal? I wish it was that easy. Yeah, I wish it was that easy, but I also understand, right? Like, if that's how you thought it worked, and you see, you know, 10, 11, 12 million illegal immigrants, you got to wonder, like, what are they doing here? Why don't they go to the post office? What are they hiding? You know, all this stuff. So I'm convinced, like, if we just somehow convey to the American public how complicated immigration actually is and how restrictive it is, that's like 70% of the battle. Yeah, and it's it's trying to explain to people how really genuinely difficult it is to become a U.S. citizen if you're not native-born. It's not... It's not a simple process. You really you have to start at a very specific spot and do a very specific series of events at very specific times. And if you don't do that, then you do not have a shot at being a U.S. citizen. Yeah, and and nobody really understands this. Um, it's like trying to have a conversation with somebody about cutting um, income tax rates where they, when they don't even know what an income tax is. They they don't even know the U.S. has one. Like, how do you start that conversation <laughs> just besides just like lecturing them about what an income tax is? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think a good one to try to use is, especially since this is sadly going to become a topic again, um, the DACA recipients, the dreamers and people who say, well, why didn't they just get legal at some point? I'm like, OK, they missed their window. Like if your parents brought you here and didn't apply for asylum or refugee status, when they got here or up to a year afterwards, that's it. That, that was your shot. And if you didn't take that, then you have no legal pathway to citizenship as it stands right now. Yeah, that's right. And, and if you leave for any purpose, um, you can't come back for uh, under any circumstances for 10 years. Yep. And, and if you try, you get a permanent ban on coming back to the United States for any reason. Um, you know, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen and you go abroad to try to get your green card, because you have to get those at um, U.S. embassies abroad usually or consulates, um, even then, you can't come back. And people just don't understand this. They think it's like, oh, well, you know, I fill out a form wrong. Oh, my bad. I guess, you know, I get a do-over. It's like, no, you don't. No. You don't get it. <laughs> yeah, you get one shot. That's it. You screw up, you're done. Yep. And and I think this like very horrible and it's not like, you know, if I if I mess up some other form, um, you know, I'm going to have to go down to the DMV and that's terrible. It's a waste of my time. I hate the DMV. Um, but if I don't get a driver's license, I mean, that's going to be bad for me. That's going to limit my income, limit my freedom, my choices, etc. Um, but it's not as bad as being deported to a country that I don't remember, that I don't speak the language of that I haven't been to in like 25 years. Where my income, like even if I have a driver's license, would be cut by like 80% compared to the United States. So it's quite a punishment. Yeah, it's steep. And especially the longer you've been here, I mean, once you, I mean, presumably you get married, you start a family, you've got a job, you set down roots. And then all of a sudden, 25 years later, you could be deported. And it's like, well, what what am I supposed to do? What is my family supposed to do? Like what? And there's no way around that. There's no way to fix that unless you get a very good lawyer who can somehow convince an immigration judge to let you stay, which is something that is becoming increasingly difficult by the day to get an immigration judge 
to give a stay of deportation or even better to give somebody legal permanent resident status or to even get citizenship. It's like, this is not, this isn't even really a possibility for most of these people. No, it's not. And some of the cases that break my heart the most are the ones where you have somebody who was adopted as a young child, uh, came to the United States, uh, and their adoptive parents didn't fill out the paperwork properly. Um, And they've lived here forever on a green card, and then something happens where they commit an offense or they didn't refile for their green card and it expires, and then they have to be deported even though they came here as like a three-year-old and were adopted and don't remember anything about the country where they were born in. There are some cases of that, and I don't know. I mean, that seems like a a life-shattering event. Yeah, that reminds me of the case that was gosh, a couple of months ago now, where there was actually a Border Patrol agent who lived his whole life. He's like in his, what, 40s? I mean, lived his whole life here, was actually a employee of the U.S. government, did not know that he was here illegally. Believed his whole life he was a legal citizen. Yeah, I I think, um, I think the, the, he found out, right, when he was gonna go apply for a passport i think yeah like for the first time and 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 that's when he sort of found out that no he was actually born in mexico and his parents brought him over and he was like eight weeks old yeah and he, and he didn't know like obviously he passed numerous background checks clearly he's a border patrol agent so the u.s government didn't know which brings into question the validity of the u.s government even being able to verify this kind of stuff because clearly they weren't in his case he had something that passed for a U.S. birth certificate, obviously. So he had a driver's license and a social security card and could pass a background check, but was here illegally. And so now his whole life is just upended. And I don't know if they ever decided if they were going to actually deport him or not. But and he had a wife and kids and his whole life here. And it's just like, and a lot of people like to point and laugh at that because he's Border Patrol. And I'm like, you know what? That's still a really messed up situation to find yourself in. I mean, that's just, that's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. Like, I mean, I, I, I am no fan of Border Patrol either, but this guy, um, he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> like, that's just, that's terrible, right? You know, I like to fire most Border Patrol agents. I don't want to deport them. Yeah, I mean, I if Border Patrol ended tomorrow, I'd be happy. If DHS ended tomorrow, I would be happy. Amen to that. They can they can take ice with them too, quite frankly, because the the um, I can do a whole hour complaining about ice, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think kind of to bring it back to my original point is because this isn't a topic that if you're native born you don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. But yeah, our immigration system is really fundamentally broken, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of political will, at least not in the branch of government where these things are supposed to happen, which would be the legislative branch, to do anything about it. So in this vacuum, we've got the executive branch doing what the hell ever they feel like on a daily basis and just making these horrible, horrible, horrible situations. And this obviously goes back to the Obama administration too and to the Bush administration, although Bush was better on immigration than Obama or Trump, but still, we had these situations, but... Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's devastating. It's devastating stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's something that's been happening for a long, long time. And people are just now, I think, paying attention because President Trump speaks about it in just the ugliest ways. And I think it's also a lot of people who are anti-Trump who are bringing a lot of kind of light and heat to this. And not to say that there weren't people protesting it under the Obama administration, there very much was, but it just wasn't getting the kind of lift that it's getting now, which, I mean, I'm happy that people are kind of seeing it, but I don't think people are really thinking about it and really kind of understanding that we need to do something about this. This needs to be handled in Congress. We need some kind of immigration reform. We need something in place to start addressing this stuff. That's right. I mean, this is not an issue that a presidential election by itself is going to fix, right? This isn't some kind of um, series of aberrant actions by the Trump administration. Um, This is the Trump administration using the law, oftentimes in the cruelest ways possible, um, but they're using the law. Um, And frankly, looking at the deportation records of this president, President Trump, He's not going to be able to deport nearly as many people as President Obama did, um, even if he has a full eight years to do to try. And that is a problem that is um, that Congress needs to fix. So my great fear is, let's say President Trump loses in 2020, Democrats can come in and they don't fix the law. They just sort of undo some executive actions and. Um, you know, try to put it back in place some kind of DACA, and they don't try to actually fix the law because that's where the problem is. Yeah, and I've watched all of the Democratic debates, unfortunately. And oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the things I do for content. But I think I would not even need both hands to count the number of minutes that have been spent on discussing immigration in all of the debates put together. Like, we've spent hours discussing Medicare for all, but I don't even think we could cobble together 10 minutes of discussion about immigration. And that that worries me. That bothers me because now I'm like, okay, so what is your plan for immigration? Like, I know people like Bernie and Liz have said, oh, once I become president, I'm going to do all these EOs or undo these EOs. I'm like, okay, fine. But what is the plan? Like, what is your comprehensive plan and furthermore, considering most of these people are senators or Congress people, why aren't you doing that right now? Yeah, I mean, this is some of the big frustration with it. It's sort of this. I just don't take a lot of them seriously. Like uh, Julian Castro, or Julian Castro had um, you know some good ideas, um, some sort of detailed specifics, um, and he lost. You know, he he got booted out of the um, primary fairly early on. And most of what these other candidates have who remain in there, some of it's fine, um, but it's not that detailed. It's not that great on their websites. Um, It's not certainly not in the detail that President Trump um, has placed uh, his platform, which is which was quite detailed in immigration. I don't think he wrote it, by the way, but he definitely copy and pasted it from somebody who knew what he was talking about and appointed people who knew what they were doing uh, into these positions. So I, I, I do worry that it's just sort of superficial amongst a lot of Democrats. It's sort of a way to distinguish themselves from Republicans, but they don't really care one way or another. 
Yeah, for better or for worse, when Trump was running in 2015, 2016, he did have a pretty clear immigration plan. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> Hor- ambiguity. Yeah, horrific as it was. And what interests me, especially about immigration in general, is it's this topic that is supposed to be of great importance to the election, to the American people, but it's not something that's widely discussed. Like, I don't I don't understand why this isn't a topic in Democratic debates. I don't understand why they're not fleshing this out, because I, I thought the idea was that if you're going to run against Trump, then you have to run against his signature issues, which immigration is his signature issue. So you might want to make up a plan here, guys, something, anything. Yeah, I want to. I mean, I I don't mean to defend the Democrats, believe me. Um, uh, But it is a little bit early, you know, maybe in the next three to four months we'll see something. Uh, Aren't the caucuses soon? Um, Yeah, Iowa is in nine days, if I'm correct. So we're starting to get into the actual primary season, which it feels like we've already rode a year plus in. But we're actually going to start voting soon. Yeah. So that's going to be uh, – I'm looking forward to what that says. The the thing the thing is, you know, somebody like Bernie Sanders, I mean, he's got a long history of being opposed to legal immigration. And that's where he's changed his mind about people who are here who are unauthorized, who are illegal immigrants. And, you know, good for him. I'm glad he's changed. Um, but the real major injustice as far as I'm concerned is those people who are abroad right now in other countries who want to come here who can't. Those people are the ones who are suffering the most in this system. And uh, Bernie Sanders goes on these rants, you know, up until recently, talking about, well, do you want your jobs being taken by a Mexican or a Vietnamese worker, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, who are you, Trump? Are you Trump's, <laughs> little, you Trump's little brother? I've pointed out, especially on that and on the economy, honestly, there's not a lot of daylight between Trump and Bernie Sanders. They really are, um, you know, different emphasis, I think, but they're in terms of what they actually want to do in the economy and the policy, um, at least on immigration and trade, pretty close. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't think I could tell them apart if they, you know, one was president or the other was. I'm not sure if I could. Yeah, both very much economic nationalists, both very much immigration restrictionists. So... Yeah, and that's something that I think is underappreciated, right? I think I think Bernie is is, is coming at it from like a a less vindictive in terms of like uh, you know less ethnic scaremongering, and he's definitely much more supportive of Dreamers and those fellows. So I'll give him credit for that. But when it comes to legal immigration, allowing in more people coming in lawfully, um, I don't think there's much difference between Bernie and Trump. I think they're about the same. Yeah, and I could see under a Bernie administration, especially like H-1Bs and more work-based visas like that, getting slashed even more so than they already are in the name of economic nationalism and protectionism. Yeah, I mean, the thing that worries me about Democrats is that they're much more competent when it comes to administration and bureaucracy than Republicans are. So many of these executive actions that the president, President Trump has put in place are just like so poorly written. A lot of them are struck down multiple times before they finally stick. Um, they're not comprehensive, but somebody like, uh, Bernie Sanders, if he actually has the, um, uh, democratic party and those bureaucrats behind him, he could do a lot more, a lot more quickly and a lot more competently than Donald Trump. That's worrying. Yeah. And kind of to go from that, especially since we're on the topic of the economy, um, kind of a truism that 
used to be kind of widely accepted, which doesn't apply to our current situation, and I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, I have my suspicions, but it used to kind of be that when things were good economically in the U.S., people kind of eased up on their worries about immigration. And then as things got tighter economically, people kind of started worrying more about immigration, which as it stands right now, economically, we're doing pretty good. I mean, we're reaching peak employment. Um, I mean, GDP keeps going up. We still have a decent economy, but people are still incredibly worried about immigration right now. So I, I kind of wonder, because it, it kind of goes back to the whole economic anxiety sort of thing. And it's kind of a mask falling off moment now, I think, where it was never really about economic anxiety per se. But I just kind of want to get your thoughts on kind of what what we used to believe was true as far as the economy and immigration and where we stand right now and kind of what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, I'm in that camp. I don't think economics really has much to do with people's opinions at all on uh, on this topic. I think it's like a, a tertiary issue. I think issues of um, culture, insecurity, you know, xenophobia are also in there, um, and perceptions of chaos are what really drive this. Um, stuff about, you know, culture, security um, have been talked about to death, but the thing I don't hear talked about is these sort of perceptions of chaos being just paramount. People have the opinion that Immigrants are storming the border in record numbers. It's overwhelming. The wall, you know, the walls that are there and the fences are just like teeming with people coming across. And when people think something's chaotic, they don't support liberalization. They don't support um, loosening things up or deregulation in the ways that we support this stuff. Even though the numbers of people coming across are pretty low by historical standards, not the lowest we've had, but pretty low. So it's without that, without that sort of like calm on the border, it's going to be very hard to reform immigration. But then we can't get the calm on the border unless we reform immigration. So it's like this double-edged sword, and it's something that uh, you know us alone amongst all developed nations have to deal with. Yeah, and it doesn't help that restrictionists kind of paint the caravans and stuff like that as an invasion, like. We're being invaded, like, by who? What, what, I'm sorry, what, what army is invading us? Who are they yeah, representing? Exactly. <laughs> you know, you have, like, this caravan of, like, a thousand people that starts, like, a thousand miles away, and uh, only a fraction of them get here, or none of them get here, and it's painted as, like, an army marching toward the border, and it's just crazy. People believe the craziest things. Like, if I thought building a border wall would make people calm down about the border and think it's secure, I'd be like, heck yes, let's do it. The problem is, when you do that, you're going to have all these cameras, so then every time somebody crosses the border illegally, you're going to have a picture, and those are going to run on the news, and it's going to freak people out, even if the numbers fall by 99%. People are going to think it's even more chaotic and more crazy. So anything we can do to make it less chaotic and saner, I think, is like something that would really help with convincing the public that immigration is good and immigration reform is a good thing. Yeah, and I wish there was a way, and again, this goes towards actually having actual honest-to-God congressional immigration reform to streamline the process so that there is a line that people can get in and you can kind of 
do things in a logical way and not have to do it in this kind of haphazard way, especially that people coming to the southern border have to do it because there's no other way for them to do it. Like, this is it. The asylum process is it for these people. And yeah. I don't think a lot of people understand that. They don't understand that. Um, you know, that the chaos is a making of our own terribly restrictive system. And we're not going to get rid of that chaos until the system is changed and liberalized. Like in the same way that the murder rate in the 1920s and 30s didn't really start to fall permanently um, until prohibition was ended. So, but, but the thing is, like, people just don't think that way. Uh, policymakers don't think that way. Politicians don't think that way. American voters don't think that way. Like when, when people see chaotic situations like going on, their reaction is, well, we need to get it under control. We need police, we need walls, we need security. Um, nobody ever thinks, or rarely thinks, except for us uh, libertarians, thinks the answer is going to be to uh, you know legalize and open up. Yeah, the, the answer is never, well, why don't we just let them in? It's always to this kind of, well, we have to stop them or put them in jails. And it kind of goes to what's a very carceral mindset among a lot of non-libertarians and people who don't think about this kind of stuff. And it's like, Okay, what harm are these people doing? Like, who's being harmed here? You're crossing from one side of a magical invisible line to the other. Who's the injured party here? Who's being hurt? Like, what? 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 What did these people do to you? Yeah, I hear, I hear, you know, all manner of like ridiculous arguments um, about that. Uh, you know, from crime to terrorism to uh, they're, they're lowering wages or the my, one of my favorites, right, is they're, just, they're, they're destroying American sovereignty, whatever that even means. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. This is like magic words. Um, you know, they're destroying our community. It's like, really? Some guy coming here to work hard in a city you've never been to inside your country is going to destroy your community thousands of miles away? Really? Um, it's just... I mean, it's just, like, ridiculous. I mean, it's a, it's a chorus of, like, uh, really tiny complaints of the uh, that, that are really pathetic in the most part, that are really sort of the world's smallest violin-type complaints. And I just have a very hard time respecting most of them. Like, I've looked into them. I've spent years looking into them, trying to make the most – the best case that they can possibly make. And a lot of them are just, like, laughable. It's like, that's not true. Like, illegal immigrants are coming here and committing an enormous amount of crime. It's like, that's absolutely not true. They're far less likely to commit crimes than native-born Americans, just by example. Um, here is all the evidence. And then they cite me back like some anecdote, whereas they would never do that if it was the gun debate. Yeah, or even you know? if it was like some, even if it was a native-born person, like, okay, you have this one person who did something horrible, like, okay, well, what about these... 100,000 other people who just want to work peacefully, have their families, go about their business, and never bother anybody. Yeah, it's like, you know, and then it usually creates like this circle, right? You say like, yeah, well, then they're going to increase, uh, you know, increase unemployment and lower the wages of Americans. And like, well, not really. In the long run, the demand curve for labor in the U.S. is perfectly elastic. So increases in supply don't really affect wages. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, if they come here, they're going to use welfare. It's like, well, not really. They're barred from welfare, and they use less than native-born Americans, and they have a generally positive fiscal impact with some small exceptions. And they're like, oh, well, they're going to destroy American culture. And it's like, well, they're learning English, and their kids all speak English just about. And by the third generation, there's really no 
none of that original language left. It's just like back in the day. And then when you're done with that, they go back on the first topic again. And it's just like a lot of people are not interested. There's a lot of people out there who are, who are good faith, who are debaters, who would listen to these arguments, who will respond and who will change their mind just like there are on any topic. But a lot of folks I run into, it's just the Republican Party told me this is immigrants are bad. Um, I don't like those foreigners coming in. I'm going to have to come up with a better argument than that, though, so I don't sound, um, you know, like a jerk. Yeah. And here you go. And, and jerk is putting it politely because there's plenty of other words that you could call people. <laughs> <laughs> but even kind of the economic argument that you touched on, and this is one that kind of annoys me, too, is this whole idea that they come here and they're going to take jobs and suck up resources. I'm like, OK, well, if you live in the United States, you're you're a consumer of stuff by virtue of being here. So the more people that are here, the more people there are to consume stuff. So it automatically balances out like, okay, so you come here, you have to rent a house, buy a house, you have to buy groceries, you have to buy clothes, you have to, you, you have to participate in our economy. So when, when you add more people, you're growing the economic base and nobody really thinks about it in those terms. They just think about it as in, oh, this is what they're taking away. I'm like, no, look at what they're giving back. And especially when you look at, especially the taxation thing, you can't avoid paying sales tax or you can't avoid paying property taxes or there's a host of different taxes that you can't avoid paying. And most immigrants do pay income taxes for various reasons, one of them being to actually establish proof of residency so that if you do want to become a citizen one day, you can prove that you've been here for X amount of years. But it's just... It's one of those where it's like, like I said, it's just this very emotional, anti-intellectual reaction to things where when you sit down and think about it, it's like, okay, well, that doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's populism. Yeah. You know, po populism is basically like a public tam temper tantrum um, where they hate big things and foreign things. Um, it's like jealousy and envy as a political movement. And it leads to all these crazy things. And you see it on the left-wing side, too, with different issues, um, and sometimes with this issue. But it's really um, – it's not about logic for a lot of folks who are just committed. It's not about arguments. It's not about evidence. Um, it's about other issues. And they just see it as, like, fundamental um, to their identities or to politics. So it's, it's a really – it's a tough issue. But I don't think it's I don't I don't know maybe I'm gonna eat this prediction um, I'm gonna have to eat my hat or something on this but I don't think it's gonna get much worse frankly um, I think we're at near peak I think it's gonna be something else and I, I base uh, in the future that's gonna um, uh, get our attention and I base that on what's happened in other states like Arizona right you had like the Arizona Republican Party freaked out uh, between like 2008 and 2015 on immigration and now the party there is a lot more moderate they've really calmed down um on this issue and if it can calm down in arizona i think it can eventually calm down in the rest of the country well I'm maybe i'm an optimist i don't know it's a possibility too and i'm wondering because i don't really follow arizona all that much i wonder if they saw happening to arizona what happened to california and were fortunate enough to like pump the brakes on the whole anti-immigrant xenophobia thing before things went completely off the rails and Arizona went blue the way California did. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of the thing is with, with Arizona or in California, right? Like I'm from LA. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been there. Uh, I grew up there and 
you know, prior to 1994, when the Republican Party really started blaming uh, immigrants for all the state's problems, you know, in the state-level elections for governor, um, the GOP and the Democrats basically split the Hispanic vote. Um, and then it was really afterwards when that started to diverge markedly, and the Democrats would get 70, 80 percent of the Democrat of the Hispanic vote. But it made such a big difference because the Hispanic population was growing so rapidly at that time. Um, it was on a quite the upward trajectory in California. But um, these laws were passed in Arizona when Hispanic immigration and demographics were really cooling down. So the population growth in Arizona for Hispanics has been a lot lower than it was for California in the 90s for Hispanics. So um, Arizona might that the GOP in Arizona might have just gotten lucky in terms of when they decided to pick this battle. That is a distinct possibility. Like I said, I don't really look into it, but I'm wondering, especially when people try to make the argument against immigrants, they're like, oh, well, if they come here, they're going to vote Democrat or or vote the wrong way, which is really what they're saying, which is, well, yes, if you keep villainizing people, then yes, they're not going to vote for you. Like, that's kind of common, basic logic. So yeah. I, I wonder if that if that trend continues like nationwide and you do start seeing even more of this backlash. I wonder if people will, if the light bulb will come on or if people will triple and quadruple down on the idea that, well, we can't let these people in because they're going to vote wrong. So I think it's going to um, continue, but on the other side of it is the country is getting older, and older people tend to vote more Republican, right? So younger people who are more uh, diverse tend to vote Democratic. Older people tend to vote more Republican. So it seems to be balancing out like pretty well um, and shifting, which is one of the things why you see Florida becoming like a little bit redder. Um, in places that have like growing immigrant populations, oh, Florida has a lot of immigrants, but you have a lot of like the elderly populations growing a lot too. But then you have a place like, um, uh, you know, like uh, uh, some other states in the Midwest um, going a little bit bluer because of like younger, more diverse populations, or places in the mountain like uh, Colorado and Arizona, etc. So I think it's going to be like a balancing effect, but it's going to affect different states more differently. And the, and the other thing just to recognize is, right, like political parties only want to win. They don't have like principles, right? They don't believe in things except victory. So even if the GOP starts to seriously lose and they start to think, yes, it's because of immigration, um, they will change. Uh, they will recover some lost ground, probably not all their lost ground, but they'll change and moderate so they can win again because it, it is ultimately a competitive market. Um, in most cases, um, even though in some places they may be extinct, like in California, um, nationwide, I'm not so much of a pessimist, not because I'm, you know, a Republican or anything, but I would like to have more competitive parties, at least nationally. Yeah. And I think especially for the GOP to even have remotely a chance at anybody under the age of 35 at this point, I mean, you're, you're going to have to back up off this. Like it's, it's just not popular amongst that demographic. So if you want to keep anything of what's left of your party which as far as i'm concerned the gop can die in a fire i don't care but i mean they're they're going to have to liberalize on that and i i don't understand why they don't understand that yeah um no i agree i think it's probably they think they're gonna ride out you know people who are gonna the country's getting a lot older in terms of demographics and i think they think they're gonna get an increasing share of that vote and you know they might be right um I don't know. That would make me depressed. I wouldn't like that. 
Um, but that might be their future path to success is getting an increasing share of the elderly vote. And as demographics change and people age, um, that could work well for him for, um, you know, a few decades just to be the pessimist. And possibly. And I mean, if the GOP wants to leave those under 35s for up for grabs, I know a um, certain third party that uh, could definitely use a couple of more people in it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I do think there is a play to be made there, but that's that's a whole nother topic. But but before I let you go, I do want to talk about something that is fairly recent. Um, we now have the Supreme Court has held up the public charge rule, which for those of you who don't know, um, basically now the U.S. government can for anybody who's applying for a green card. This does not apply to asylum seekers, refugees, anything like that, but people who are applying for a green card. As part of the application process, they can decide whether or not a person is going to become a quote-unquote public charge, which means, do we think this person is going to go on government assistance at some point in the future that has not been entirely determined? And there's also a component of that if somebody can reasonably afford their medical expenses, but again, there's no guidelines as to what that's supposed to mean and all this is very just kind of nebulous and up in the air as to what any of these things are supposed to mean for people but apparently this is the law of the land now so I want to touch on the welfare question because this is another one that I don't think people really understand and that is that as you mentioned before immigrants do use less welfare than native born and that there's also a reason for that, which is that there's a lot of legal barriers to immigrants using government assistance that people don't understand already exist. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're a green card holder in the United States, you basically don't have access to any means-tested welfare programs for the first five years that you're here. And if you're an illegal immigrant, you have access to basically nothing uh, while you are here. If you're on a non-immigrant visa, like an H-1B or a student visa, you don't have access to basically anything. Um, there are some small exceptions to all these categories, of course. Um, but the net result is that using like the most pessimistic interpretation of this data is that um, immigrants in the United States use about 21% less welfare per capita than do native-born Americans. And that's not controlling for anything. Immigrants do tend to be poor, so they're poorer than natives, even though, and even even so, they have less access and use fewer of these programs than native-born Americans. I mean, welfare state in this country, the problems with it, uh, they're not imported problems. They are problems that are homegrown. Yeah, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people think about that, especially when you start talking about who is going to use government assistance and when that is okay. And there's kind of a conversation. Um, when I was talking to Brian Kaplan about his book, Open Borders, um, he made the point in there about Milton Friedman's argument about how you can't have open borders in a welfare state. And he pointed out that if you're going to make this argument that, okay, immigrants may end up on government assistance, well, do you also apply that same argument to native-borns? Because obviously nobody knows when a baby is born whether they're going to become the next Jeff Bezos or whether they're going to be dirt poor their whole life. Like, you can't really tell that the same way you can't tell with an immigrant. 
So, like, how far down the rabbit hole do you really want to go with this argument? Yeah, and, you know, Brian's a friend of mine. I completely agree with that. I mean, the other thing that, that bugs me with that Milton Friedman argument is that almost everybody forgets the second part of that of his quote, um, which is Milton Friedman then said that's why he favors illegal immigration, because they can't use welfare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, that's a good point, Milty. Like, I love that. And then, but, but, but to put on like my hard-headed sort of neoclassical economics brain here for a moment, the only way you can probably really have um, a welfare state that is sustainable, that is, you know, not running huge deficits like our social security programs and entitlement programs are currently, is to radically expand immigration because there aren't enough young people who are working to pay taxes to support the wave of entitlement. So, like, I, I've had some conversations um, with my, my wife's grandma about this where she's worried about the coming bankruptcy and the solvency of um, Social Security. And I said, well, you know, one way you could do to save it, at least for the rest of your life, is to let in 100 million immigrants between the ages of 22 and 30, um, especially if they have a college degree or above. Um, and let them work. That'll sustain the program for like another 40 or 50 years. Um, and she's like, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, nativists do not like that argument at all. <laughs> no, they don't. They um, they uh, are, are only concerned about saving Social Security up to a point, uh, but not if it means liberalizing immigration, apparently, at least in some of their cases. Well, no, their their answer is to raise the U.S. birth rate. And I'm like, okay, even if a hundred million babies were born today. You've still got a good 18 to 20 years before they join the workforce. What yes. are you going to do for those 18 to 20 years? Yeah, exactly. So it's a, there's a time delay and why, like I'm all in favor of babies. I have a bunch of babies myself, big fan. Um, but, um, if we're thinking about sort of the fiscal state of the United States, mm -hmm. Um, why not let some other government educate them and then they can come over and start working right away? <laughs> exactly. Get them once somebody else has already paid for their education. You come here, you work, and then the U.S. doesn't really have really anything, economically speaking, invested in these people. So it's really just all upside. And especially when you think about like DACA recipients and stuff like that, part of that deal is that you pay into these systems your whole life, but you will never get to withdraw from them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, if you think about it this way, like I grew up in, in California. Uh, I went to public school in California. Um, like I'm paying taxes now, uh, but I'm not working and living in California. So I am likely to be – I have a much bigger drain, my existence, on the finances of the state of California um, than just about any immigrant is in California who came there at the age of like 18 or later. Yeah, because California invested in you and you left. Yeah, I'm a traitor. You know, <laughs> I, I, I emigrated to a different country, uh, to Virginia, and I, uh, I don't need a passport, thankfully, to be here. <laughs> and I think that's actually an effective way to look at immigration is when you talk about people crossing borders, like, okay, well, what happens when you cross the borders within the U.S.? Like, if you move from one state to another state, like, the what? I, is there something wrong with that? Like, does the other state owe you some kind of compensation? Do we do we make the same arguments of people moving from state to state that we do from country to country? And by and large, the answer is no, because everybody accepts that within the United States, if you're a U.S. citizen, you could 
go about where you want and live in whatever city, country, state you choose to, and nobody really bats an eye at that. Yeah, it's one of the things that bugs me about nationalists the most, right? They talk about, oh, well, nationalism, the the nation state is just the people uh, picking a government for themselves. And, but then on the other hand, you know, and the nation state exists to support us, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then on the other hand, like, it's all about how we owe it a bunch of stuff, including like our loyalty and all of our property and, you know, everything else. Um, so it's like all of those principles, well, yeah, you know, the government exists to protect my rights. Um, all basically goes out the window. It's like, no, 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 no. What do you owe the government, right? Like you got the benefits of being in a society. So you are being born into a society. So you owe it everything. And it's like, well, why let's apply that to the state level, shall we? Let's take your like collectivist, anti-individualist creed and apply it to Americans inside of um, the United States. And uh, that never goes over well. People just don't get it. No, and it's just nativist arguments are just so hard to listen to as a libertarian because it's like at some point you just start like gripping the arms of your chair like, oh, my God, what is wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> like, what? Like, and, and when I was younger, right, like I remember like I'm, I'm 36, so I grew up, I remember all the anti-WTO protests and all this nonsense in the 90s and early 2000s. And, um, you know, it was my liberal friends who would say things like, oh, the corporations are destroying our community and our culture and blah, blah, blah. And now it's, you know, conservatives who are saying this stuff, you know, the corporations and the immigrants are the ones destroying our communities and our culture and blah, blah, blah. So I've been, I'm like, I'm old enough that I remember when the other side was making all these arguments. And frankly, they don't sound any better coming out of the mouths of my right wing friends than they do when they came out of the mouths of my left wing friends. And what's frightening is now it's coming out of both sides. Yeah, well, yeah, don't make me, you know, uh, don't make me cry here. Um, I mean, I'll say this about some Democrats. Right? Like, I watch these, um, uh, I watch some of these primaries, not too many of them. Um, and there's definitely your populace in there, right? There's like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, but some of them are not, you know, they still have that little bit of like a cosmopolitan vibe about them. So, like, Mike Bloomberg, I hate him on a whole ton of things. Uh, but on this, he sounds, you know, fairly, he sounds pretty good on immigration. Joe Biden sounds fine on immigration. Pete Buttigieg sounds fine on immigration. They don't sound like these sort of like numbskull populists um, that I've come to expect um, from large swaths of both political parties. So the, the good thing about populists is they never deliver on their promises. They're incapable of doing it because they're so incompetent generally and their promises are impossible to, uh, you know, they're impossible to fulfill. Um, but on the other hand, they can do a lot of damage before they fail. So I, I don't know. I, I'm a long-run optimist, but I don't know if I should be a short-run pessimist. What do you think? I don't know. It's just the fact that it's coming from both sides now and that it is gaining so much traction on both the right and the left. I mean, most. I mean, aside from Biden, which he kind of fluctuates in the polls, I mean, both Bernie and Liz are economic populists and they are protectionist and it's that this is gaining kind of traction on both sides, especially the right, because the the right has always been, at least in my lifetime, the, the, the free traders and, and the open trades and we have trade agreements. And of course, we we're globalists. And now watching that kind of retract, it's like, 
okay, who who's going to make the argument for free trade now? Because it's apparently not very popular anymore. And this is making me very nervous. And I don't like this. And I know whoever wins this year, I'm not going to like it. Like, uh, unless by some crazy, crazy, somehow something comes together and the Libertarian nominee wins, which (laughs) (laughs) even I'm not that optimistic. But I just, I don't see things getting any better over the next four to eight years. And I don't know how much damage is going to be done and how much work it's going to take to repair it. I mean, especially when you look at things like like the tariff situation and how especially countries that we have already levied uh, tariffs on are starting to find other trade routes. And so even if Trump gets booted out of office next year, that's still going to be a lot of damage to repair economically because once countries find these other trade routes and they don't have to deal with us anymore, it's not like they're going to magically start dealing with us again. They're just going to be like, well, whatever, we found other ways, so screw you, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's um, one of these things. But, I mean, they were probably trading with Americans first because Americans had the, the lowest prices to offer, etc. So I think if we repealed a lot of these tariffs, um, it, it, it would probably snap back um, fairly rapidly or the markets would, would increase uh, globally. Um, but if I was a foreign government or a foreign trader, on the other hand, right, like maybe the U.S. will do this again randomly. Maybe they'll elect some nut job at some point in the future pretty soon. So why should I trust, um, you know, these long-term trading arrangements? Maybe they're not going to be so long-term after all. Um, So that's also what really worries me about this. Yeah, and especially when all of a sudden, you know, you got these handful of other options. It's like, "Ah, I can kind of keep my options open. I don't really have to rely on you guys that much. So maybe I won't. And then, like I said, I don't see... No matter who wins this year, anything good happening on the trade front. So, and I don't see anything good happening on the immigration front, really. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, there's just there's not been a lot of Democratic talk about what their immigration policy is. Like I know what Bernie's is, just mainly because he's been out there for so long. And being an immigration restrictionist kind of goes hand in hand with having a more socialist sort of philosophy and a more socialist economic policy because i mean obviously if you're going to do that you can't just have people coming here all willy-nilly clearly so and as far as what elizabeth warren will do i don't know i don't think she knows and biden it it would probably just be status quo probably i think it'd be status quo of what people in the democratic party want for biden uh elizabeth warren will just you know make something up and convince her fans that she's got a really thorough thought through really smart uh platform that is consistent with math or something so i i I have like i'm not a big fan of joe biden obviously there's a lot of things wrong with the guy but i think he'd basically be like the median democrat which is currently a lot better on this issue than um populists of any stripe yeah, I I will take that. Although he's <laughs> still not great, but no. again, this all really needs to lie with Congress anyway, and not the executive branch, because we see what happens when the executive branch gets to control immigration. Bad things happen. Really yeah, bad abs- things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that Congress has to fix, and um, the role of but 
and the role of the president should be a lot less. Um, but unfortunately, I um, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think it is either, just because, I mean, judging from what's happened the past couple of times somebody's tried to bring up immigration, I mean, the last real push was from W, and he basically got eviscerated by his own party. Like, Obama tried it a little bit and kind of got a lot of pushback, so he was just like, oh, okay, whatever, and then we did DACA, which I don't agree with the process of how it was done, but when you... Look at it from the perspective of it was either that or nothing, then, okay, like, pragmatism has to come in a little bit here and acknowledge that, well, something has to be done about these people. Like, you can't just kind of leave them in legal limbo, so. But on that note, I think we should go ahead and wrap this up because we are running a little long. So go ahead and plug your stuff. Tell people where to find you, what you're doing, what you're reading, where they can read more of you. Uh, so you can come to the Cato's website, cato.org, and find all of our immigration work there. You can follow me on Twitter for all my snarky takes. Uh, my name on there, my hash, uh, my username. I don't even know what the word of that is. Anyway, it's uh, at Alex, A-L-E-X, Narasta, N-O-W-R-A-S-T-E-H. So it's at A-L-E-X, N-O-W-R-A-S-T-E-H. So come and follow me, uh, all my snarky takes, as well as all of my work on immigration. Yes, and he's written many white papers. Uh, I've written a ton of papers, a <laughs> ton of blogs, a ton of academic papers, working on a couple books right now. Um, so yeah, come and, um, you know, come and check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and speaking to me. I, it was my pleasure. I've been following you on Twitter for a little while now, and it was really a lot of fun. Thanks again for the invite. Well, thank you. So that was my discussion with Alex on the topic of immigration and kind of how the ways in which a lot of people don't really think about immigration and don't really understand the process and how difficult it is and where the pitfalls are and a lot of other things along the way. So as always, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.